Awesome. Well, good morning, Grace Church. It's good to have you guys here in the second part of a conversation that we are in, and uh, we are calling Citizen, which of course is all about God and politics. Obviously, this is an incredibly relevant topic to where we stand right now as a nation, and so I want to take some time and kind of talk through this together um, in this series. I also want to give you guys a quick update real, real fast. This past weekend, you might remember the weekend previous to this, uh, was the launch of our Saturday evening services as Grace Church. I just wanted to give you an update. Uh, one of the reasons we added those Saturday services, if you are a guest with us, is, uh, is because on Sunday morning we were having a hard time finding chairs for uh, people who wanted to come. So we started two new serving uh, service opportunities for people to connect to Grace at 5.15 and at 7 o'clock p.m. And uh, since we started that last weekend, we had over a thousand people connect with Grace Church at the Medina East Campus, which is awesome. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's wonderful. And... Um, and so throughout our four services, people are connecting. Uh, we have found that when we can open up chairs and open up seats, the community uh, wants to engage with Grace Medina East. And so I do just want to uh, also remind you that if you are a guest, those are two new service opportunities uh, that you can engage with at 5.15 and at 7 o'clock. And uh, it's exciting as we move forward. As I said, this is the, the second part of a conversation that we started last week that we've been calling uh, Citizen about God and politics. And if you are a guest with us this morning, kind of like DJ said, man, we are so, so thankful that you're able to be with us. But like I said, this is the second part of a conversation. So if you missed the first part, I would actually really encourage you uh, to go back and check that out. Uh, you can do that for free on our website. Uh, you can either watch that or listen to that, or you can subscribe to our podcast. You can listen to that on your drive to work, or you can listen to that at the gym, at whatever's convenient for you. And I would encourage you to do that because last week we started this conversation. We laid down a lot of groundwork. And so we kind of framed up the conversation a little bit. We actually laid down some ground rules. We said, this is what we're trying to accomplish during this series. This is what we're not trying to accomplish um, during this series. And so we uh, got a chance to do that. And last week, you might remember, we actually left off uh, looking at a passage of Scripture in which I said, I believe this passage of Scripture has the most potent, the most comprehensive um, statement on God and politics in the entire Bible. So that's where we left off last week. And so I want to pick up where we left off by looking it again at that passage. That passage, of course, is found in Mark chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? And let's flip together to Mark chapter 12 and uh, look at this passage yet again. So Mark 12, grab your Bibles and get there. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. Uh, we do have some Bibles available for you. And so if you don't have your own Bible or you don't have a smartphone or a tablet that has a Bible app, you can use one of our black Bibles, and you can go ahead and turn to page 709 in those Bibles. That's where you're going to find Mark chapter 12. And of course, let me just mention, like we do every week, that if you don't own a Bible, if you don't actually own a, a copy of Scripture yourself, we think it's really important that you have one, and so you can just take one of ours, all right? Make that a gift from us to you, and you can have one of our Bibles. Okay, Mark 12. So as you're finding Mark chapter 12, whatever Bible you're looking at, let me, let me kind of frame up our conversation a little bit today. So um, I'm fairly convinced, this might just be my opinion, but I'm fairly convinced that probably one of the most popular foods among uh, college students is ramen noodles, right? True, true or false? You think so? I think, I think that's the case. So you guys all know what ramen noodles are, I'm assuming. If you don't know what ramen noodles are, uh, basically the, that, that dehydrated cube of noodles and uh, they're, they're white, and they come equipped with a little packet, you know, the packet of flavoring, and it's basically beef or chicken-flavored sodium. That's pretty much all it is. And, and that's, those are ramen noodles, right? And so they, they are, I'm pretty sure they have no nutritional value, or if they do have nutritional value, it's probably negative nutritional 
value, but they're delicious nonetheless, indisputably delicious, and they're also extremely affordable, which makes them a great candidate to be one of the top food among college students. And I was no exception to that. So back when I was in college several years ago, I actually remember very clearly my roommate and I, when we were freshmen, we, uh, when we were freshmen, we went to a local grocery store in Chicago uh, to go shopping for the year, and they were running a ramen noodle uh, sale. You get 10 packets for a dollar, so a dime a piece. And so uh, my roommate and I were like, we're totally doing this. And it wasn't just like the, the classic ramen flavors. It wasn't just beef and chicken. They also had gourmet flavors of ramen. So there was picante chicken, and there was cream of chicken, and there was mushroom chicken, and they all tasted exactly the same. Right? This tasted like chicken. But we, each of us bought 100 of these things, and, uh, and we, we packed them up. We put them in actually in a big Tupperware container in our dorm room. And so what happened was it started to become our custom that every night around probably one or two in the morning, uh, far after dinner, we found ourselves hungry. And so it started to become our custom that every night at one or two in the morning, we would cook up ramen. So what we would do, we'd eat ramen. Oh, what it was like to be 20 years old, right? And we would do that at one or two in the morning, we'd eat ramen noodles. And I remember, you know, as you guys might know, uh, there are very uh, different ways that you can prepare ramen noodles. It's actually kind of a controversial topic. There's a lot of ways you can prepare them. Here's the way I like my ramen noodles. I would boil them in water. And then I would drain the water, and I would eat mine as noodles, right? So I would add the seasoning, and I'd eat it with a fork. That's the way I liked it. I liked it more noodly. And my roommate, on the other hand, he liked it different than I did. He liked it more soupy. And so he would kind of make a broth, and he'd put the noodles in, and he would kind of eat it that way. And I remember one night, we were sitting in our dorm room eating our ramen noodles, as was our custom, like at 1 or 2 in the morning. And my roommate was faced with a dilemma. And he said to me, he said, man, he goes, I don't know the best way to eat this. I was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's like, on one hand, it's kind of like a soup. He's like, so I feel like I need to eat with a spoon. He's like, but on the other hand, it's noodly, and so I feel like I need a fork, like I got to do something. And I looked at him, like he was from a different world. I was like, dude, he's like, that is the easiest problem to solve. He's like, why? What are you talking about? I was like, well, use both. He's like, what do you mean? Like, use a spoon first and then come in with a, with a, a fork later and, like, dirty two utensils? Is that what you're saying? I was like, no. I said, no, no, no. Don't, not, I was like, at the same time, use a spoon and a fork. And he's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, like, hold them in the same hand or put them in different hands? I was like, no. And I looked at him and I said, dude, I said, are you forgetting the most divinely inspired piece of cutlery mankind has ever seen? You guys know what I'm talking about? Say it with me. The spork. I was like, dude, the spork. The spork. And my roommate said, oh, the spork, I forgot about the spork, the divinely inspired forged in the fires of Mordor, spork, right? It's not a spoon, it's not a fork, it's the spork, it's both, and it's neither at the same time, it's incredible, right? And we're like, the spork, and I say, I'm convinced that the spork is from heaven. I'm convinced that when God brought manna down from heaven to the Israelites in the Old Testament, that the utensil that he gave them to eat that was the spork, because it is a godly thing, right? And so my roommate from that day forward uh, continued to eat his ramen noodles with a spork. Now, at this point in our conversation this morning, my guess is you might be asking the same question I found myself asking last Sunday at the presidential debate, and that is, what does any of this have to do with politics, right? And uh, here is, uh, here's what I'm getting at with that. If you were with us last week, the passage that we were looking at, there's two groups of people that came to Jesus, two opponents. We said these two groups were politically charged and they were religiously charged. And they represented two political extremes. They were on different ends of the spectrum. And we said they came to Jesus and they asked him a question that was intended to trap him. They were trying to polarize Jesus into one of two extremes. And so they came to Jesus and they asked him a very, very, very brilliant question. And I just want to review real quick. Let's take a look at what we looked at last week. I want you to glance down with me at verse 13. 
and look again at what they said. So it says later they, that's the religious leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words or to trap him, to polarize him. And so they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or is it not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So these two groups of people, these two opponents, both religiously and politically charged, standing on two opposite ends of the political spectrum, came to Jesus with the intention of trapping him. Last week, we talked all about this. We talked about the significance of the context of this conversation. We said the events that came before this are extremely significant. We talked about that. We talked about the significance of these two groups, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, why that was so important. Last week, we talked about the brilliance of their question. Why this question, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not, was such a brilliant, well-crafted question. So we talked about that all last week. And again, I'd encourage you, if you missed that, you're going to want to go back and check that out because we dug in at that a little bit. But basically, in a nutshell, the question that these guys were asking Jesus was essentially this. They were saying, Jesus, should we, as people of faith, Should we, as Jewish men and women who are believers in Yahweh, believers in the Bible, should we support a a political system, a governmental system that undercuts everything that we stand for as people of faith? That was basically their question. Jesus, should we as people of faith support and should should we be involved in a political system that rubs up against the things that we believe in? Should we support a political system, Jesus, that we know is corrupt? Should we support a political system, Jesus, in which we know that the leadership is flawed? Or should we disengage and should we rebel against a political system that we know is, rebel- that we know is corrupt and we know is against our faith and our belief system? Which one is it, Jesus? Is it activism or is it disengagement? Pick one. And they asked this question to Jesus. And you guys might remember last week, Jesus went to answer this question in such a way that it left both parties utterly amazed. The Bible says that both parties, after Jesus answered their question, were introduced into a brand new category of thinking as it related to God and politics, so much so that they marveled at Jesus in admiration, right? In other words, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, God and politics, which is it, spoon or fork? And Jesus looked at them and he said, spork, right? It is neither and it is both. And he introduced a brand new category of thinking to them as it relates to God and politics. Here's what we said last week. We said that 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 statement that Jesus made, his answer, is the most potent, most consolidated statement in all of the Bible as it relates to God and politics. There is so much truth that is jammed into Jesus' answer. We said we're going to have to take a whole series to unpack what lies behind his answer because it's so profound and it's so revolutionary and it has the power to introduce us to a new way of thinking of God and politics. And here's what we said last week too. You might remember I said, I said, I believe that this statement that Jesus gives, his answer, that it is equally as revolutionary and it is equally as invaluable to us today in 21st century America, 2016 in October, right before the presidential elections of the United States of America. This is just as revolutionary and it is just as important to us today as it was when Jesus first spoke it 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in Israel underneath Roman rule. And so for that reason, we want to really unpack Jesus' answer. So I want to look at it again and really dig at what lies behind the answer that Jesus gave. So let's take a look at it together again. Uh, If you glance down at verse 15 with me, the second part of verse 15, I really want to zoom in on Jesus' answer 
to this question. Here's what he said. It says, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Right, so let's just pause there for a minute. So again, the Herodians and Pharisees come to Jesus. They have a well-crafted question. Say, Jesus, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we support a corrupt government or shouldn't we? And Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew they were trying to trap him, but he went on to answer them anyway. And the way that he went to answer them was totally unexpected. He said to them, he said, listen, does anyone have a denarius? Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember the denarius was the coin in which you would pay the tax of which they're referring to. So they said, Jesus, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar? Well, the way in which you would pay the imperial tax was with the coin, the denarius. And so Jesus says, does anyone have that coin from that tax that you're talking about? And of course, they all did. So they gave him a denarius. And Jesus went on to ask two very, very fascinating questions. And these, are, these might seem really subtle, but they're extremely significant. Here's what Jesus uh, asked. Look at this. He said, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Whose image is on this coin? And what, does, what is the inscription that is placed on this coin? Now, again, that might seem like a really subtle question, but it is loaded with significance in the way that Jesus is going to answer this question. Uh, last week, if you were with us, I actually showed you a picture of the coin that Jesus was holding. Let me, let me show that to you again. So this is a picture of the coin that Jesus was holding. Last week I said this coin is unbelievably significant to the way that Jesus answers this question. And we didn't have to time to dig into it, so let me kind of dig into it now, talk about this coin. So on this coin, this, this coin was called the Tiberius Denarii. The reason it was called the Tiberius Denarii is because the image that was on it was that of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar, or he was the ruler over Rome during that time when Jesus was doing his ministry. And so, so Jesus takes this coin. This would have been the coin that he was holding. It was a very common coin. In fact, archaeologists dig up these things all the time. Uh, a, a denarius was about, uh, a denarii was about equivalent to one day's worth of wage for a low-class worker. So it was a pretty common coin for the most part. So Jesus takes this coin and he asks a real fascinating question. He says, whose image is on this, which would have been Tiberius Caesar? And he says, and what is the inscription? And you'll notice on this coin that on the front side, there's an inscription. On the back side, there's also an inscription. Now, this is why this is so significant. Here's what the inscription on the front side literally says. It says, Aug F. Augustus T. Caesar de V. All right? I don't know if I'm saying that the right way, but basically, here's the important part. That is all shorthand for this statement. Augustus Tiberius, that's whose picture's on that, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So literally, what this says on the front of this coin is it says, Tiberius Caesar, the son of God. That's what it would have said. Uh, right before Tiberius Caesar became Caesar, uh, he was, uh, there was a, the Caesar that came before him was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus died in 14 AD. And when he died, they declared him divine. They said Caesar Augustus was God. And so now Tiber Tiberius comes along as his successor, and so he is the son of God. So on the front of this coin is a picture of Tiberius Caesar, and it says Augustus Tiberius Caesar, the son of God. Now on the inverse side, on the opposite side, there's also a picture. That picture you can tell is a woman. In one hand, she's holding a scepter. In the other hand, she's holding an olive branch. Those two things, of course, represent power and peace. Uh, rulership and, and, uh, and peace. And then there's an inscription, and it literally says Pontifex Maximus, what it literally means chief priest. Now, here's why that's so significant. Uh, what, what Caesar was basically claiming here 
was not just claiming authority over all affairs political. He was also claiming authority over all spiritual affairs. He was saying, I am the son of God, and if you want, to, if you want a pathway to encounter God, it is found through me. I am the chief priest. Now, now, if you can start to understand the intricacies that lie behind this coin, you can start to, to comprehend why this caused such an uproar among the Jewish community. Now, this coin undercut everything the Jewish person believed about God and everything they believed about politics. It went against everything that they believed. Now, if you can imagine in our culture, just for a second, imagine the uproar among the religious community that would happen if they stopped printing in God we trust on our coinage and instead it said things like, Abraham Lincoln is God. Like, if you can imagine the type of controversy that that would cause among the religious community, you can begin to imagine the kind of controversy it caused among the Jewish community among these people. And so Jesus, Jesus says, let me see one of these coins. He takes it and he says, whose picture and whose inscription is on this? Now, you see what Jesus is doing? See what he's doing? Jesus is saying, here you have it. You have two claims. Here you have it. You have two candidates. Both are claiming the same thing. You have Tiberius Caesar and you have Jesus Christ. And they're claiming the same things. Both are saying, I'm the son of God. Jesus Christ said about himself, I and my father am one. He says, my father is in heaven. He is God. Jesus Christ claims to be the son of God. Here you have two opponents. Here you have two candidates. They both claim the same thing. I'm the son of God. They both claim to be the high priest. They both say, I am the way. I am the means by which a person connects to the heart of God. That happens through me. Both were saying the same thing. Both of them were were proclaiming a kingdom that they said was eternal and demanded all of your allegiance and all of your affection and all of your hopes. Both of them claim that. Tiberius said, Rome, the kingdom of Rome is eternal. It will last forever. Therefore, it demands all of your allegiance, and I demand all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your worship. And Jesus Christ said, no, I, I, I represent the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will endure forever, that will not shake, that will not fade. And therefore, it is worth all of your allegiance and all of your hope. Two, two opponents, two candidates claiming the same thing. And Jesus draws that out. He says, let me see the coin. Whose inscription is on it? But then I want you to notice something else that Jesus says, because this, again, it seems it's so subtle, but it's so important. I want you to notice back in that verse again what Jesus says when he asks this question about this coin. He said this. Look at it again. He said they brought him the coin, and he asked whose image is on this and whose inscription. Now, I want you just to notice this word here, whose image is on this coin. Now, this, again, is very, very significant. Here's why. Remember who Jesus was talking to, okay? Jesus was addressing two extremely religious groups of people. The Pharisees, these guys would have had the entire Old Testament memorized, right? The Herodians, these guys would have probably at least had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. And when Jesus says the word image, uh, that would have been something that would have resonated with them in a very unique way. And here's why. Some of you guys know the word image is used all throughout scripture. We see that word. It, It literally means to bear resemblance to something. That means to be in the likeness of something. And some of you guys might remember, there is a place in the Bible where image is first used. And the first place we see the word image used is in the first chapter of the first book. It's in Genesis chapter 1. And you might recall, basically, the Bible says God creates all things. He creates the universe. He creates the earth. He creates animals. He creates plants and vegetation. And the Bible says when God creates humanity, he does something very unique. And what is that? It says he, he, he creates humanity in the image and in the likeness of God. That inside of humanity, God stamps divinity. 
that there is something of the likeness of God that exists inside of you and I as humans, that we are made in the image of God. In fact, the very term that's used here in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus says whose image is on this coin, is the exact same Greek term that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the apostle Paul says that mankind is made in the image and the glory of God. Now, what does it mean when the Bible says that humanity is made in the image of God? What does that mean? Well, it would, it would take us an entire sermon series to, to really just talk about what that means. But if I could condense it in a sound bite, here's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means that you and I as humans, that we have been stamped with the emotional, spiritual, relational, and moral and creative capacity that reflects that of God. That there is something inside of us that bears the image of our creator, right? And that in the same way, a piece of metal the value of that piece of metal is determined by whose image is stamped on it. In the same way, you and I, our value is determined by whose image is stamped on us. Every human being, every person is valuable because every person has the image of God stamped on them, regardless of who it is. That person who annoys you like to, to, to no end, annoys the dickens out of you, they are important and valuable because they have stamped on them the image of God. That person at work that bothers you that, you, that every time you see them, you kind of want to hide or you want to punch them or want a combination of both, right? Well, that they, have, they carry with them intrinsic value because they carry the worth of being created in the image of God. And so Jesus says, this is so profound. Jesus looks at the coin. He says, what's the inscription? Son of God, high priest. And then he says, and what's the image? Whose image is stamped on this coin? And they answer him. And this is how they answer. Caesar's, they replied. Caesar's image. It's Tiberius Caesar. And then Jesus drops his line. Here it is. I believe, once again, the most potent statement about God and politics in the whole Bible. Jesus says this. Then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you give to God what belongs to God's. Some of you have different translations. In your translation, it might say this. Pay back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you pay back to God what belongs to God. Some of you might have other translations. I think if you have the old King James, the old King Jimmy, it says in that translation, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And the Bible says that as a result of that, they were amazed at him. They were amazed. Their minds were blown because Jesus introduced to them a brand new way of thinking about God and politics. Okay, so here's the question. What did Jesus just say there about God and politics that's so that so blew their minds that it left them standing in amazement. What did he just say about God and politics? Well, my guess is once you, once you start to understand the context, you're probably already starting to make some connections in your own mind. But let me just draw out a few things I think Jesus is saying here. Here's one of them. I think when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's, Jesus is outright rejecting the claim that Caesar is making to be divine. Jesus is, Jesus is rejecting the claim that Caesar is God right? The very, the very inscription that is, that is stamped on that coin, Jesus is contradicting. He's saying, no, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you give to God what is God's. Caesar is not God. So you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what is God. So on one hand, Jesus is rejecting Caesar's claims to be God. On the other hand, though, Jesus is also rejecting political rebellion and political disengagement. Do you notice this? Because Jesus doesn't say, Caesar's not God, so don't give him anything. He don't deserve, he don't deserve squat. That's not what he says. He says, no, give, him, give Caesar with Caesar's. So you see what Jesus is doing here? 
He is both rejecting political activism, putting your hope and your allegiance and your faith in politics, and he's also rejecting political disengagement and political rebellion. He says, no, 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 give to Caesar what Caesar, give to God. He says, spork. It's neither one of these things, and it's both of these things at the same time. Now, now here's the thing, though, that I think Jesus is really getting at, and this is what I want you to catch this weekend more than anything. I believe that when Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's, what he is doing is he is making a profound statement about the transcendence and the supremacy of his kingdom and his kingship over all other kingdoms and all other kingships. Let me say that again, because that is really important. I think that when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what's God's, what he is doing is he is making a very profound statement. He is making a very profound declaration about the supremacy and the preeminence of his kingship and his kingdom over all other kingdoms and all other kingships. See, because on one hand, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And what is it that belongs to Caesar? That which bears his image. And what bears his image? Coins, his money, his political system and his political, give him, give him his money. So on one hand, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But on the other hand, he says, don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? That which bears his image. And what bears his image? Your very self, your heart, your soul, your faith, your allegiance. See, what Jesus says is, he says, listen, on one hand, give to Caesar what he wants, but only some. Just give him the money, but don't give him what he ultimately wants, which is what? Your faith and your allegiance and your worship. Don't give those things to Caesar because you do not bear his image. Give him the coin, but don't give him yourself. In other words, what Jesus is saying in a nutshell, he's saying this, don't give to politics what belongs to God. Don't don't give your faith and allegiance and your hope and your worship and your evangelistic fervor to some political system Give it to who it belongs to, whose image you bear. That is God. Right? If, I could, if I could summarize what I think Jesus is saying in my own words when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's, I, I would put it this way. I wrote this in my notes this week. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot this down too. I think this is what it's saying. I think he's saying Caesar may be king over the coin, but Jesus is the king over creation. Yeah, Caesar, Caesar is the king over the coin. All right. Jesus is the king over creation. There is a more transcendent, supreme kingdom that Jesus holds. There's a higher allegiance that is demanded from Christ than what we're used to. I think one of the greatest passages where you see this, where you see this principle illustrated uh, is in Mark, is, uh, Matthew chapter 17. And you guys don't have to flip there. Let me just kind of summarize for you what happens in Matthew chapter 17. I love it. In Matthew 17, the Bible says that a group of tax collectors come to the disciples and it's time to pay the temple tax. Now, the temple tax uh, was another tax that was enforced by the Roman government upon Jewish people. The Jewish people hated this tax. And so the tax collectors came to Jesus' disciples. In fact, they came to Peter. And they said to Peter, they said, does your rabbi pay taxes? Does Jesus pay taxes? And you guys remember how Peter answered if you read that? Peter said, yes, Jesus pays his taxes. And so the tax collector said, well, it's time to collect the tax. So Peter went to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, the tax collectors are outside. They're here to collect our tax, our temple tax. And, and if you guys read this passage, you might remember Jesus does something really peculiar. He says, well, you know what? We're going to pay it, Peter, because that's what we do. He says, and we don't want to offend anyone, so we're going to pay the tax. He said, so here's what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to go down to the lake, get your fishing pole. He's like, I want you to cast in, and the very first fish you catch is going to have a four drachma coin in his mouth. It's just enough to pay for your tax and mine. 
You go ahead, you go down the lake, you catch a fish, and there's going to be a coin in that fish's mouth. So we have lunch and our taxes are all covered at the same time, right? And I wish that Jesus continued to perform this miracle today. How awesome would that be during tax season, right? Just go fishing and you got all you need. It'd be a wonderful thing. But do you see, it's so subtle, but do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Yes, Caesar's the king of the coin. I'm the king of creation. Caesar commands the, he commands the taxes. I command the fish. So back when I laid, when I laid um, the, the human history into progress, when I did that, I appointed that at this moment there would be a fish that like four days ago was going to swallow a four drachma coin. I'm sovereign over all creation. So yeah, Caesar might be the king of the coin, but I'm the king of creation. These coins might bear the image of Caesar, but Caesar himself bears the image of me. I made him. You see what he's claiming here? He's saying, I'm the Lord. There's a more transcendent and there is a more supreme kingship and kingdom than all the kingdoms of this earth. That's what he's trying to get at. And what he's saying is that for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that not everyone in this room follows Jesus. Some of you are investigating that. But it's saying that we pledge an allegiance to a higher kingdom, to a capital K kingdom, right? Now, I know that might, some of that might sound a little bit abstract and it might sound a little bit heady. So let me see if I can make this a little more concrete, right? So you guys know I talk about my kids a lot. I have three, three little kids, my wife and I. We have, um, we have two boys that are five and seven. And then we got a little princess. She's eight months old and uh, it's wonderful. My kids are a blast. And my wife and I and our family, we, we're relatively new to the Medina area. And so we, we moved here uh, just under two years ago. So it'll be two years in November that we moved here to Medina. And since we moved here, we love it. Medina's an awesome place. But when we were uh, doing the whole house hunting thing, one of the things that was the biggest selling feature in the house that we ended up buying was the backyard. And so my wife and I bought a house that's in a, it's in a cul-de-sac development, kind of like many of you guys have in Medina, one of those. So we have less than half an acre. But in the back, our backyard butts up against some woods. So we have a little bit of woods, not a lot, but we have a little bit of woods. But it's just enough. Like I said, we got two boys. So it's just enough that they can build forts and get poison ivy, right? Just enough for that. And so I was like, man, we got, you know, it's going to be great for the boys. So that was a selling feature. So we ended up getting the house. And after we got the house, I remember real quick, my boys and I started to get to work uh, back in the woods. We started to subdue the land, right? And so we started to carve out trails, and we started, my boys started building uh, little forts back there out of sticks. We actually built a bridge. There's a little tiny creek back there. So they build a bridge, and they'll catch frogs and stuff back. They love it. And, and once we started doing this, their imagination started to get away with them. It was awesome. And I remember one time we were back there, and my boys said to me, they said, Dad, they said, it's like we have our own world back here. Like, it's like we have our own country. And I was like, yeah. I said, it is kind of like that. I said, well, why don't you guys name it? It's your country. Name it what you want. And so my oldest son, this is awesome, he goes, Dad, he goes, Dad how about we call it Florida? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, that's pretty good. I was like, you know, Florida's already taken, though, you know. And I says, you have another name? And this is, I kid you not, this is the second thing that came out of his mouth. He goes, how about Arlonia? I was like, dude, that's actually really good. I was like, that's really good. So, so from that moment on to this day, I have a country in my backyard called Arlonia. And my kids play back in Arlonia. And as my kids have grown and if they're, as they're, you know, learning and developing, uh, uh, Arlonia is also growing and developing. And so right now, Arlonia is a full... F- fledged country. It has its own citizenship. It has its own customs. It has its own, you know, things going. It's, it's, it, even, it even has its own documentation. 
And so uh, a couple weeks ago, I was leafing through one of my son's journals, like a, a notebook he had, and I found this page in his notebook. In fact, I'll show you a picture of it. I took a picture of it. This is the page. I looked at it, and I said, I said, buddy, I said, what is, the, what is this? And he goes, oh, you can't read that. And I was like, well, yeah, like obviously, you know. And he's like, uh, he goes, no, he goes, you can't read it. He's like, it's Arlonian. He's like, oh, yeah, it's Arlonian. I said, but you can read Arlonian, right? He's like, well, yeah, you know. And I was like, well, what does it say? Can you tell me what it says? He's like, well, yeah, this is, this is a document that the animals wrote before Arlonia was civilized. And it talked about what ha- the history of our, I mean, his own history, you know. I'm like, where did you come from, you know, child? And so I asked my kids, because they were both there. I said, is there a ruler over Arlonia? Is there, like, leadership? And they're like, well, yeah, there's a, there's a king. I said, okay, what's the king? He said, he's a frog. It's like, that makes sense. Yeah, frog king. I said, what's he like? I said, he's really kind and he's really smart. It's like, wow. I was like, could he possibly run for president of our country? That'd be... <laughs> I might vote for the frog king, you know? And, uh, and they talked about that. Now, now, why do I tell you all that? Well, here's why I tell you that. Because when my boys are back in my backyard and they're in Arlonia, they are citizens of Arlonia, right? There's customs, there's rules, there's all of those things that exist in Arlonia. But, but here, here's what I want you to understand. That regardless if my boys are, are in Arlonia or not, there is a higher identity that they have. There is a more transcendent citizenship that they hold, a more transcendent uh, identity that they have, right? And that is this, that my, my boys, are, they bear my image and my wife's image. They are children of my wife and I. They are Lavignis. And so before there are Arlonians, first and foremost, primarily, they're Lavignis. And it doesn't matter if they're in Arlonia or they're in Narnia or they're in Medina, or wherever they are, before they're any of those things, they're Lavignis, right? And so becoming a Lavigny, having that name on them, there, there's certain privileges and there's certain rights that come along with that. There's also certain ethics that come with that. The Lavigny house, we have certain rules. So for example, at my house, one of the rules that we have is you listen, you listen the first time every time. You listen the first time every time. Uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. That's a rule that we have with our kids. Another rule that we have with our kids is you do not disrespect your mother. If you disrespect your mother, you will, you will evoke the wrath of your father. That's what's going to happen, right? That's a rule that we have in our house. Another rule that we have at our house is that pants are necessary in public. And if you, if you guys have boys, you know why that's an important rule, right? And so we have those rules. Now, I want you just for a second, to ima- for illustration's sake, I want you to imagine that one day my wife and I go back to Arlonia and our boys are back there and they're disrespecting their mom and they're breaking all the Lavigny rules. Now, what am I going to say to my kids? I'm going to look at him and I say, what are you doing? And let's say they looked at me and they said, well, Dad, the frog king said that in Arlonia we disrespect mom. And the frog king said that in Arlonia pants are optional, right? What would I, look, what would I tell my kids? Here's what I tell my kids. I say, you tell the frog king, right? You tell him that you give the frog, you give the frog king what belongs to the frog king. Give him his imaginary money. Give him whatever, you know, you got these, fine. But listen, you give to your mom and dad what belongs to your mom and dad. There is a primary allegiance that you have that is over the secondary allegiance that you hold as an Arlonian. You guys, I think if you can, it's kind of a silly illustration, but I think if you can get your mind around that, you're starting to understand a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. You guys, you know, you know what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 18? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that in order to get to his kingdom that you have to depart from this world? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. All other kingdoms of this world, whether they, be, whether they be Rome or whether they be Egypt or whether they be Babylon or whether they be America, 
They are all man-made and temporary. None of them will last and none of them will endure. They are all, in one way or another, Arlonius. But Jesus says, I have a kingdom that's not of this world. It does not come from human origins. It comes from divine origins. And because of that, it will last for eternity. And it will go on forever. It will never fade. It will never vanish. It will endure and endure and endure. Jesus says, that's my kingdom. It's a transcendent kingdom. It's supreme over all of the kingdoms of this earth. And it's to that kingdom that those who follow Jesus pledge allegiance to. I think uh, this is what the Apostle Paul meant in, uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 3 when he said this. Speaking of those who follow Jesus, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, that word that's used there for citizenship is actually the same Greek word that we get our English word politics from. See what Paul's saying? He's saying our politics are a heavenly one. Now that doesn't, that doesn't negate, that doesn't dismiss the fact that we should be engaged in the politics of our day. We should be. And we're going to talk about that a little bit next week too. But what he's saying is that there is a politic that trumps all other politics. And that, by the way, was not a political innuendo. Don't read into that, all right? There's, I didn't mean anything by that. But there is a higher allegiance in which we claim to. So, so what does that mean then? Practically speaking, what does that mean? If, especially for those of us who follow Jesus, what does that mean for you and I? Well, I think it means a lot of things. And here's one. I think it means that the primary consideration for those of us who follow Jesus as it relates to the to our cultural situation right now is how do we live out our capital C citizenship in a lowercase c country? How do we live out our family ethic in the midst of Arlonia? How do we do that? And, and for that, honestly, I think we need a whole other conversation. And so next week, I want to talk at length about what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar in our day and age? What does that look like for a person of faith to engage in the political uh, arena in our culture. What does that look like? So I want to talk about that next week. There's so many considerations. It's a big conversation. But I also think that, that this truth means some more primary, more foundational things that we have to talk about. Here's one of them. I'll, I'll actually use Pastor Jeff's quote to help me with this. Pastor Jeff, some of you guys might know, is the senior pastor of all of Grace Church and all of our campuses. Pastor Jeff is an incredibly, incredibly wise person, and he's known for saying some pretty profound things from time to time. One of my favorite quotes from Jeff, unrelated to what I'm about to show you, is a while ago he said this. He said, my hope is that no one remembers my name, Jeff Bogue. And I oftentimes have wondered how ironic it would be if that was the only quote that he was known for. Would that not be funny? <laughs> I hope no one remembers my name, Jeff Bogue, the only thing he's known for. But on another occasion, on a different occasion, Jeff said this. I thought this was awesome. He said, don't moralize the political and don't politicize the moral. Don't, don't moralize the political and don't politicize the moral. What does he mean by that? Let's break it down a little bit. Notice the first part there. It says, don't moralize the political. In other words, what he's saying is, don't put the politics of our day on the same shelf as you do your allegiance, your hope, and your faith in Jesus Christ. I think for some of us, we really need to analyze our passions. We need to assess our passions. And, and for some of us, we put the same amount of enthusiasm and faith and hope and evangelistic fervor behind politics that, that, that we do, that even more so than we do behind our faith in Jesus Christ. I think what Jeff is saying is really good. He's like, dude, don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? Your faith and your allegiance and your heart and your hope. Those things belong to God because his, am his image is what's stamped in your heart, not that of politics, not that 
of the White House. And so I love the way he says it in here. He says, don't moralize the political. But then on the other hand, he says this. I love this. He says, and don't politicize the moral. Don't politicize the moral. Don't, don't, don't take issues that come from the kingdom of God, that are kingdom of God issues, and reduce them down to simply being political issues of our day. Because there are some, there are some issues that we face as a nation that are not just political issues. So for example, issues of things like the sanctity of human life, it's not a political issue. Issues of caring for the orphan and the widow, for those who are, are disenfranchised or unable to help themselves, in, so that, that's not a political issue. It stems from a higher plane. It stems from a higher place. Issues of, of giving to every human being, not just Americans, but giving to every human being's dignity and justice, that, that flows from God, that doesn't flow from a political system. Issues of, of things like, like, like sexual, human sexuality, that's not a p- political issue. That is a creator God issue. And so, so what Jeff says is so good here. He says, listen, don't politicize the moral. Don't put these issues on the same shelf. Now, as you can tell, those issues do not fit neatly and cleanly into any one political party. And so, and so for that, we need wisdom. For that, we need discernment. For that, we need God's help to know how to navigate those things, to live out a capital C citizenship in a lowercase c country. And again, like I said, we're going to talk about that some more next week. I think the bottom line is this. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing we can walk away with is before we start talking about how does a, how does a person of faith engage politics and, man, what are we supposed to do in an election like this and, and what are all the considerations around engaging with the political sphere in our culture today? I think those are all important questions, but I think there's a more important question that we have to ask first that this passage demands, and that's this. Have you made the most important vote of all time, and that is, have you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Have you crowned him king of your life, or have you not? Have you given to God that which belongs to God, and what is it that belongs to God? That of which his image, that of, of whose image is bared, and you bear his image. He alone is worth your worship. He alone is worth your faith. He alone is worth your allegiance. There is nothing else that is worthy of those things, because I think Napoleon Bonaparte said it really well. You guys know Napoleon, right? I don't know, one of the things you might not know about Napoleon is at the end of his life, he, he encountered a turn to, to faith in Christ. And he wrote some really, really powerful words. I want to read this quote to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but it is so worth it. It's so powerful. This is what Napoleon says. I love this. Napoleon said this. He said, I know men. I tell you, Jesus is not a man. Superficial minds are, uh, see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. He says, that resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Now watch what he says next. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day millions will die for him. I've inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with electric influence of my looks and my words and my voice. When I saw men and I spoke to them, I lightened up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. But Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man towards the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across the chasm of 1,800 years, now 2,000 years since Napoleon has passed, over the span of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. 
He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. Give to God what is God's, what bears his image. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all of its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable, supernatural love towards him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This is, that it is which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. You see what Napoleon is saying? He's saying, man, me, Caesar, Charlemagne, Alexander, Pharaoh, Herod, prime ministers, presidents, they're all frog kings. They're all frog kings of Arlonius. There's a real king. There's a true king. His kingdom endures and it lasts. And, 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 and contrary to the fact that so many people have tried to extinguish the movement of Christ's kingdom, they have all failed. 2,000 years later, we are sitting in a room in Medina, Ohio, pledging allegiance to the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. I, I, think, I think Napoleon had it right. And so the most important question is really this. Have you put your hope in this king? There is, there is no political system. There is no earthly king. There is no person who is worth your devotion, who is worth your hope, who is worth your allegiance, and who is worth your worship. But there is one who is. It's Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, give to God what is God's. And have you given to God what is God's, your heart? Listen, for some of you this morning, maybe for the first time, I would implore you, if you've never given your life to Christ, to do that. If you have not crowned him king in your life, I would beg you to do that because he's the only one who's worth it and he's a good king. He's a sovereign king. He loves you and his, in your, and his image is stamped in you. And so maybe today for the first time you want to give to God what is God's. That's your life. And so if you want to do that, there's, not, there's no magic formula. You don't have to pray a special prayer. There's no, no little seance or ritual. You don't have to sacrifice a small animal. You don't have to do those things. You can just between your heart and God's heart just say, God, I pledge allegiance to you. You're my king. You're the king for real, above all other kingdoms of this earth. There's no political system that can bear the weight of my hope and my allegiance and my faith, but there is a king who can, and it's Christ. I'll end with this. Shane Claymore said it so well in his great little book, Jesus for President. I love the way he said it. He said this, enough donkeys and elephants, long live the lamb. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to say thank you because you're the king, the real king. The Father, in the midst of, a, of an ever-changing landscape, Throughout all history, we have seen kingdoms ebb and flow. Father, we have seen kingdoms rise and fall, kingdoms that have claimed to be eternal in scope, that now are ancient ruins. Father, we think of Rome, we think of Egypt, we think of Babylon. And Father, we even think of our own country. The reality is we shouldn't put our hope in the politics of our day because our hope never lied in this country. It never, it never stood here. It's, it's in a higher plane. So, Father, as a result of that, 
that means that we can put our hope in something steadfast, something immovable, something eternal that's found in you. And so Jesus, for the person this morning uh, who is maybe for the first time confronted with the reality that you are the king of the universe and that you demand from us total allegiance, total faith, total hope, I pray that God, maybe you would help a person to make a bold decision to stand for you, to give their heart to you, to crown you the king of their life. Maybe for the first time, God, would you give someone the boldness to do that? Would you give them the faith? It could be scary to do, but Father, we know that you're the real king and we want to give to God what belongs to God. That's our hearts. Father, for those of us who do love you and do follow you and who call you king, I pray that even this morning that as we sing and we worship, Father, that we'd be able to shout out with all of our hearts that you are our king. Father, we don't have to be full of anxiety. We don't have to be full of fear. As it relates to, to our country being in a time of transition and being in a time of uncertainty, we don't have to be full of anxiety. We don't have to be full of uncertainty because we know that regardless of what happens in November of 2016, that you are still on the throne and that your kingdom is unshakable and that you're still the king. And so, Father, we place our hope in that this morning, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.